0: Well, hey, I've got a a picture here uh, that's going to show up behind the screen. You might recognize the couple guys there. On the left, anybody know who that is? George Lopez. And on the right, Denzel Washington. And what's happening there? I mean, look at that picture for a moment. What does it look like is happening there? I mean, obviously, George Lopez is really excited about something, but Denzel's kind of like, I'm not so sure. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I look at this picture, what I see is a pity laugh. You know what a pity laugh is? Raise your hand if you know what a pity laugh is. All right. Well, thank you, thank you, because I get them all the time. Uh, it's when it's when you know somebody tells a joke and they're really excited about it, and George Lopez is leaning over and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, remember this?" and Denzel's like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah, get get away." It's a pity laugh, right? It's kind of like a pathetic little groan. It's like, oh man, you know, Denzel, you can tell he's uncomfortable in this picture and he kind of wants to push George Lopez away. He's kind of giving him a, a pity laugh. Well, I, I know for me, I like to make my wife laugh. In fact, it's probably one of the joys of my life to try and make my wife laugh. And uh, sometimes I succeed and sometimes I fail. And when I fail, not only do I get a pity laugh out of my wife, but I get this groan. Guys, you know what I'm talking about? When you, you when you try to make your wife laugh and she just kind of goes, "Oh, honey, that was so sad." Nobody knows what that's like. Give me a pity laugh, okay? Uh, oh, that was good. That was good. <laughs> then occasionally, occasionally I redeem myself and I have something that's really funny and I get a A belly laugh out of my wife. And that's what I'm looking for. A big belly laugh. You don't have a big belly, honey. But I want a big belly laugh. There you go. So we go from groanings to glory. Right? Groanings, those pity laughs, like, oh, what a terrible joke. Uh, To glory when I can get that full belly laugh. And that, in fact, is the title of our message today. Groanings to glory. Groanings to glory. But Paul, in Romans 8... Is really not going to be talking about jokes. He's not going to be talking about pity laughs. Instead, he's going to talk about how we go as a, as a people, Christians, we go from a life of labor and struggle and groaning, but the ultimate trajectory, our ultimate end, is glory. It is glory. Would you stand with me as we read from Romans 8 verses 15 to 28, which will be our text here this morning. Would you stand and I'll read it and then we'll we'll study it together this morning. Romans 8, beginning in verse 15, Paul writes this. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and also joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And likewise, the Spirit, He also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us With groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows the mind of knows what the mind of the spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You may be seated. Oh, what, a, what, a, what a rich, rich passage of Scripture we're in today in Romans. And, uh, you know, let's, let's jump to verse 15 here. Let's see, where, where's Paul, where's he jumping off of here? Paul writes in verse 15, You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Paul is speaking here of the nature of, Of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He's speaking of the nature. Or uh, what the Spirit is about in us. And what he's saying about the Holy Spirit in us. Is that that Spirit is not a spirit of bondage. It's not a spirit of slavery. It's not a spirit of coercion. It's a spirit of adoption. And this idea of bondage and slavery and and coercion. This comes elsewhere in Paul's writings. For instance, in in Galatians 5 verse 1 Paul writes stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage those of you that know your Bibles know that this, this bondage here this slavery this coercion Paul means to liken those terms to the law <coughs> he says the law Though from God, created in man this slavery to it, this bondage to it, this, this, this coercion to, to oh, I, I have to do it, I have to do it, I have to do it. And by the Spirit, the Spirit who set us free, all of a sudden we in our Christian lives, we can look at the truths of God and, and rather than think I have to do it, we can think I want to do this. I know it's good for me. And so we move from bondage and from slavery to what is good, to liberty and freedom to do what is good. And Paul writes, you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again. Notice the word again. He says, look, this spirit, this spirit of bondage, it's come on you before when the law was there. Until the coming of the Holy Spirit, you were in bondage, you were enslaved the law made you see the, the, the reality of your sinfulness and the depth of it. But when the Spirit came, you were freed. And Paul writes, you were adopted. Now, Corey did an excellent job two weeks ago on the, on the concept of adoption in the book of Galatians. And the concept here in Romans is no different. No different whatsoever. It was a, it was a Roman legal institution whereby it actually came out of Rome. It wasn't really, uh, didn't have a heritage in, in the Jewish history at that day. They, also, they, they assimilated it from the Greeks and the Romans. But in Rome, when, when, when a family adopted a son or a daughter, when they adopted a child into their family, that child, particularly in that day, that son, was given all the legal rights and all the legal privileges that come to a natural child. Much like uh, our process of adoption today. That adopted child becomes fully part of the family who has adopted him. And so, we can rightly call out Abba, Father. We can call God Father precisely because God has adopted us by our faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 16 that the Spirit, notice verse uh, 16 in chapter 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, this is a a peculiar verse. The verse literally reads, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. However, there's also a a commonly assumed reading of of Romans 8.16. Let's take a look at that for a second. A commonly assumed reading of this verse reads it this way. The Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. Now you might think, wow, we're getting into prepositions here. Does that that really matter, uh, Neil? With or to? I mean, come on, really? Does that make a big difference? You bet it does. You bet it does. And this latter reading, this, this later reading here, is usually understood to mean that if you're a true Christian, you should always feel. The Holy Spirit inside you. Of course, this interpretation of verse 16 also carries with it some, some potential for fear. For the implication is, is that those who don't sense the witness of the Spirit, they might not be Christians at all. Now, let me be clear. This interpretation of verse 16, I'm going to argue in just a moment, not right this moment, but it is, is not compatible. Okay. While Christians do, at times, certainly feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in them, certainly do, I feel that I do at times, especially when I'm worshiping, I can sense the presence of the Spirit in me. While that happens to Christians, um, and Christians do at times certainly feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, such a spiritually charged sensation should never form the backbone of, of our assurance of salvation. Let me say that again. Such a spiritually charged sensation should never form the backbone of our assurance of salvation. Our eternal destiny is secure because of our faith in Christ. And in fact, one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is actually to tell us about Christ. Notice what it says in John 15, verse 26. Jesus writes: Jesus says, but when the Helper comes, and he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, When the Holy Spirit comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. It's interesting because that word testify there is from the same root word as what Paul uses in Romans 8.16 when he says the word witness. Similar wording there. So if there is anything, if there is anything that the Holy Spirit is witnessing to you or testifying to you, it is that He is witnessing to you about Jesus. He's reminding you about Jesus. He's telling you about Jesus' words. He's bringing to remembrance the words of Christ. If there's anything the Spirit is testifying to you, it is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that salvation is only found in Him. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Because remember, there's a big difference between being testifying to someone and testifying with someone. Prepositions matter. And here in Romans 8.16, Paul says that the Holy Spirit isn't testifying to us, but that He's testifying with us. And so what I want to do is I want to dismiss that interpretation altogether. I want to say that that's... Even though it's true that the Holy Spirit does testify to us, it's not about a feeling. That's not what Romans 8.16 is about. Instead, Paul writes carefully now, he says "The the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if I'm testifying with someone, what does that mean? Well, if I'm testifying with someone, That means I'm I'm in an interaction with another person, maybe a conversation with someone, and and I'm here and I'm testifying. And if I'm testifying with, that means that there must be someone over here who's also testifying. And and that also means that there must be a third party who's hearing the testimony. Right? We're, We're walking through this very, very simply here. On the one hand, we have... Someone who's testifying, and but they're testifying with someone else. And of course, that means that they're not testifying to each other, but with each other towards someone else. It's exactly what Paul has in mind here. Exactly what Paul has in mind here. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, Moses wrote down these words from the Lord. He said, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And it's interesting, in Romans 3.21, Paul appeals to two witnesses, the law and the prophets, to justify that that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so what we see in the New Testament time and time again taken from the Old Testament, is the concept that by two or three witnesses, a matter can be settled. It can be established. It can be finalized. It can be demonstrated true. What is Paul teaching in Romans 8.16? He is teaching this on your outline. Take note. The Holy Spirit, in conjunction with our spirit, testify to the Father that we are His children. The Holy Spirit, in conjunction with our spirit, testify to the Father that we are His children. Now, what do do we mean by that? Well, of course, um, with, with our spirit, how does our spirit testify that we are a child of God? Because our spirit's been renewed. God looks upon our spirit and He sees the spirit of His Son in it. He sees that we've been regenerated by faith in Jesus Christ. He sees that we've become a new person. He sees that we have eternal life. And so when he looks at our spirit, he says, aha, I see a child of God. And not only that, not only on that testimony, but also on the testimony of his spirit who resides in us. The Holy Spirit also testifies to the Lord and says, yes, I am in this child. He is one of yours. And so by the testimony of two witnesses, we have a matter established that we are a child of God. Your spirit testifies to that. The Holy Spirit testifies to that. And the Father looks at those testimonies and says, the matter is settled. The matter is settled. And so that, for for many of you, I think, um, is probably a... um, a new way of looking at Romans 8.16. I think that so often we've read that verse and we thought, oh, it must mean a feeling. It must mean this sensation. And if I don't have this sensation, maybe I'm not safe. That's not, what's going on. That's not what's going on here at all. By the testimony of two witnesses, the matter is being established. By our spirit, by the Holy Spirit, the truth is established that we are children of God. And Paul goes on to say in verse 17, And if children, love this part, if children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, he says. If children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God. You know, all believers, we have an inheritance. We, every single one of you, who believed in Jesus Christ, you're going to get a new body on the last day. You're going to get a new existence on the new heavens and the new earth. You're going to be without sin. You're going to be freed from death. You are going to have eternal life. Every single one of you who have believed in Christ, you have this inheritance waiting for you in heaven, waiting for you. And all this talk about, you know, you might be thinking, um, why all this talk about assurance and inheritance? Why, why is God? Why is Paul? trying to settle the matter that we are God's children. And why is he trying to inspire us about this inheritance? Well, one of the reasons why Paul is giving us such great assurance of our salvation, and one of the reasons that Paul is inspiring us with this discussion of inheritance, is that Paul is about to talk about the stark reality that even though we are his children, and even though we have an inheritance, that, that suffering and that hardship and that difficulty is in the cards ahead of us. You know, when, we, when, we share, uh, when we're about to share difficult news with someone, we usually preface it with something good, don't we? We, try, we think hard about how can I ease them into this situation. I remember when I was a kid, my little, my dog, Taffy, I was about six years old, seven years old. And my dog, Taffy, got out at night and he ran into the street and he got hit by a car while I was sleeping. And uh, he was still alive at the time, but his injuries were severe. And my dad, he took the dog into the garage and put him in the back of the truck, uh, back of the, 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 the Jimmy, the Jimmy, GMC, Jimmy. We called it a Jimmy. Um, and I remember my parents woke me up. It was midnight, you know, and I woke up and I was six or seven years old and I'm thinking, what, what's going on? I'm kind of delirious, you know, and, and my dad and my, my mom said, hey, we, you know, do you love Taffy? And I, I was like, yeah, you know, and, and they started asking me questions about Taffy and about all the good times I had shared with my dog and all the fun that we had and all the games that we played. And they said, you know, we we want you to see Taffy uh, uh, tonight. And they took me into the garage and they let me see and they had her covered up. And she was in pain. And I could tell something was going on. But they let me pet her. And they let me say goodbye. And then I went back to bed. And I woke up the next morning. And my parents broke the news that, you know, Taffy wasn't going to be here anymore. But what my parents did in that moment was they prepared me for the difficult news that was about to come. They prepared me with good thoughts, with reminders of the good for the difficult news that was about to come. And here in Romans 8, Paul's been talking about your assurance of salvation. He's been talking about your inheritance. All of you who are believers in Christ, you have this. You have these good things. And he's propping this up right now to kind of lower the boom a little bit. And he's about to to, to go on to a discussion about suffering and about pain and about hardship. But remember, before we get there, remember what we have already in Jesus Christ as we approach the difficult part. And before we get there, notice what Paul says at the end of verse 17. He leaves us with this thought and he says, not only uh, if children are we heirs, heirs of God, but joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, this is a really peculiar uh, transition into this discussion of suffering. This is another kind of inheritance, really, that Paul's speaking about. He's not speaking about the same inheritance. And there are at least a few reasons why the joint heirs with Christ is different than the heirs of God in Romans 8.17. For one thing, uh, to be a joint heir is predicated upon suffering. Did you catch that? He says, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. And so Paul there is is putting a condition on becoming a joint heir. Whereas to become an heir of God, all you need to do is be a child of God. You see that? Unconditional heirship to all children of God. But if you want to be a joint heir, it's contingent upon suffering with Christ. A second reason they're different is because all the other biblical, so many other biblical texts, And themes speak to this uh, varying levels of inheritance. Think about it. In the Old Testament, the firstborn was given a double portion compared to the other sons. Um, Jesus talks about the the parable of the talents and the minas. Um, To the one who had ten, He gave ten more. To the five, He gave five more. And to the one who squandered it, He he took it away. You see, friends, those parables, they're foretastes of what's happening in the Kingdom of God one day. They're foretastes of what Jesus is going to do in offering reward, in offering crowns, in offering opportunity to reign with Him in the life hereafter. And this is a subject that is not often broached in Christian circles. Um, I would argue, in large response um, to our... um, who are confusing it with maybe Mormon uh, doctrine. You know, in the Mormon church, uh, there's different levels of heaven, okay, they teach. And, and that's not biblical. That's not, you know, can't find that in the scriptures. And so I think evangelicals have really raged against that and said, no, there's not different levels of heaven. In fact, we're all the same. But to say we're all the same in heaven is, is to go too far as well. And in fact, there's so many instances in the New Testament and the Old in which inheritance and crowns and rewards are given in varying degrees. And we need to pay attention to that. But here's the kicker. The real reason why we know that joint heirship is different than to be an heir of God is the grammar. Take a look at this. Um, I've listed the Greek and the English here, but I've listed the Greek for a reason. um, For you to see how Paul is wording this. He says, at the, as he's discussing joint heirs with Christ, he says, supleronomai uh, de Christu, but co-heirs with Christ. Notice the su prefix. Now go to the next one. Eper sum if we co-suffer. Notice the su prefix. And the last one. Inakai sundoxastomen, that we might be co-glorified. Did you catch that? In every single instance of that last part, Paul is prefixing the words with "sue," "sue," "sue." And what does he mean by the word sue, by the prefix "sue"? He means "with," "with," "with." He says, "If you want to be a joint heir, a co-heir, a, a with heir with Christ, then you need to joint suffer, co-suffer." With suffer, so that you can be a joint, so that you can be joint glorified with Christ, co glorified with Christ, with Christ in glory. Paul's language here, at the end of verse 17, demonstrates emphatically that to be a joint heir is different than to be an heir of God, and we need to pay attention to that. This is I, the reason I spend time on this, is because it's often overlooked. And to our peril, when we fail to realize that there's something extra for those who suffer with the Lord, who are faithful, who persevere. And the bottom line is, in the face of suffering, we are to take hope, knowing that to the degree that we co-suffer with Christ in this life, we can become joint heirs with Christ and be co-glorified with him in the life to come. Paul continues in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Did you catch the language again? He says, I consider, I reckon, I calculate that the sufferings of this present age, this present time, are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us or for us more specifically. Let that sink in. I don't, I don't know what uh, hardship you're going through. I don't know what suffering you're going through. Some of you I know, but not all of you. And, and put that in your mind for a moment and realize that, guess what? You will not even be able To hold that moment of suffering, no matter how long it's been, you will not even be able to hold that up in comparison to the glory that will be revealed for you. I don't care what what you've gone through, it doesn't matter. And I'm not being, um, I'm not lacking empathy, I'm clinging to biblical reality. And the biblical reality is, regardless of what you are going through, there will come a day when you will look upon it and say, that doesn't even hold a candle to what I now have in the kingdom. You will get through it. You will get through it. And you will look back one day and say, that was nothing Compared to what I have now, the richness of my inheritance now. Doug Moo writes this, he says, we must weigh suffering in the balance with the glory that is the final state of every believer. And so weighty, so transcendentally wonderful is this glory that suffering flies in the air as as if it had no weight at all. I remember uh, being on the seesaw as a kid, you know, and, and the objective on the seesaw was to flip the other person off the seesaw. At least that was my objective. And when it was my sister, it was especially fun. No, but, you know, you, you just, you know, you try to come down and pop them right off. Right. Well, guess what? Your sufferings, your trials, your hardships, they're going to pop right off that seesaw one day when glory is revealed in you. You will look at them and say, that wasn't even suffering compared to what I have now and so Paul goes on to say in second Corinthians 4 he says therefore we don't lose heart even though our outward man is perishing yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding weight exceeding an eternal weight of glory precious words let's go to verse 19. Paul writes, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, what does this talk about creation here? Paul brings in this whole new element into his discussion of creation. Of what's happening here. And really, though, it's not out of line because he's been talking about airship and joint airship. And one of the things realize this, one of the things that we will be able to become an heir of is portions of the new heavens and the new earth. There will be there will be a, a government of sorts underneath the, the leadership of Jesus Christ, whereby there will be, uh, you know, organizational structures and, and, and people who oversee elements of the new heavens and the new earth. And so it's not out of style for Paul to then go on to talk about the creation, because what the crea- what creation, what the world, what nature is ultimately calling for and eagerly anticipating is when you and I reign over it. And I think that's, that sounds really strange. But that's exactly what Jesus said when you go back to the book of Genesis. Read chapter one, two and three, boy, read God's instructions to Adam in chapter two and three, in which He specifically enumerates the idea that Adam, you are to rule over the world. You are to be creation's leader. You were to rule over the earth. You were to fill it, multiply it, tend to it, care for it, lead it. And so when when Paul says in verse 19, the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. That is to say, the creation longs for you and I to return to our rightful place under Christ in ruling over the world. But it was subjected to futility because of sin. The creation was not just us, but the whole of creation. And that's why we see things like uh, the the animal kingdom at at war with one another. You didn't see that in the early part of Genesis. And interestingly enough, the promises later on is that the lion will lay down with the lamb. Animal kingdom was not meant to be at war as it is. We see earthquakes, we see hurricanes, we see floods, tornadoes, etc. The chaos and the calamity that comes from sin. And I'm not, we're not here to say that just because a, a calamity happens, oh, that means the people there were sinning. No, it's that the calamity occurs because there is sin in, all over the world. And so nature is in revolt. It is in chaos. It's out of whack with its leaders. Mankind. And God subjected creation to futility. Not, not out of creation's own uh, desire, but He subjected it in hope. And that hope is that when we are also redeemed, when this life is over, and the next life comes, creation will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And so, you know, we... we, we uh, we see so much in the news uh, this emphasis on caring for the world, and you know what? That's a good emphasis. We should be caring for the world. We should be stewards of the world. We should be careful with God's creation, and we shouldn't pollute it. And we should uh, we should show respect to the earth that the Lord has created. And yet, at the same time, man's idea nowadays of taking care of the earth is to is to pay. For indulgences against it, you know, we we have politicians around the globe suggesting that the, the polluters, well, they really don't need to clean up what they're doing; they just need to pay for what they're doing and send their monies elsewhere. Uh, these kinds of political ideas and philosophies that are flying around um, fly in the face of what we're supposed to be doing as men and women over creation. We're not to be paying for our excesses. We're not to be giving out indulgences for the things that we that we commit against creation that are contrary, that are polluting it. We're to tend to it. We're to care for it. And so we as Christians, we need to take responsibility to be good stewards of this earth, to be good stewards of our homes, to be good stewards of our communities, and not get this idea that, well, we can just sign a check and, and pay for our pollution. That's... That's a very foreign concept to the Scriptures. Enough politics. I don't do that very often. Verse 22, Paul writes, For the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. That the birth pangs there is the is the is the verb and Jesus uses the noun in Mark thirteen when he says, Look, hey, nation's gonna rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in various places, there'll be famines and troubles, and these are the beginning of birth pangs, Jesus says. Creation, at odds, birth pangs, sorrows, labor and groaning. And not only is the creation doing that, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we who have a taste of the life that is to come, because we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves, we groan, eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our body. And here the adoption is is said to be future, whereas in Romans 8.15 it was said to be already ours. And the difference being is quite simple. On the one hand, we have been adopted we have been given these legal rights and privileges. It is in store for us. But on the other hand, we're still waiting for it. We're still waiting for the inheritance to come. We're still looking forward to the redemption of our body. So Paul can speak of adoption as both past and future. Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, the hope of redemption, but hope is that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Paul says, look, we hope for this. I know we don't see it yet. We don't see the inheritance yet, but it is coming. And so we maintain, we become a people of hope and perseverance. And why do we persevere? We persevere because, number one, we've been promised this inheritance. And we've been promised A greater inheritance if we labor especially in suffering with our Lord. But number two, Paul's about to say that we endure, we persevere in this hope because we know the Spirit's helping us all along through it. And that's how he finishes off the text in verse 26 and following. He says, likewise, the Holy Spirit, He also helps in our weaknesses. For we don't know what we should pray for as we ought to. But the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. With groanings which cannot be uttered. Just on a more literal level there, um, we might write that um, the Holy Spirit himself makes intercession for us and then it just says inexpressible groanings. Um, And so really the the translators can go either way, whether it's the Holy Spirit's inexpressible groanings or whether it goes back to the believer's inexpressible groanings. Really, it's not of great concern uh, here for us, I don't believe. The point being is that the Holy Spirit prays for us when we don't know how to pray. He prays for us when we don't know how to pray. Have you been there before? You don't know what to pray for? You do, but you don't know how to pray for it. You're going through something that's uh, just, just beyond beyond painful and, and, and hard and difficult. And you're at, you're at a point where you look in the mirror and you think, I can't pray anymore. I, I don't know what to say anymore. Tom Wright says this. He says, at the very moment, at the very moment when we are struggling to pray, and have no idea even what to pray for. Just at that point, the Spirit is most obviously at work. The Spirit calls out of us not articulate speech, but a groaning, which cannot at the moment come into words. This is prayer beyond prayer. Diving down into the cold, dark depths beyond human sight or knowing. Because we don't even know what the Spirit is praying for. But we know that He's praying for us. And right now, I just want you to take a moment. I want you right now to just sit there quietly with the Lord, just for a minute. And I want you to consider the things of your life that are causing you great distress. Perhaps they're beyond your control. Perhaps you have no idea how to pray for this matter anymore. And all I ask is that you put that matter in your mind. And that you sit quietly before the Lord. And know assuredly that the Spirit is praying for you and praying for that very issue. Take a moment, and just sit silently before the Lord. I am feeble. And severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. The Spirit of God was praying for you in that moment. And He will continue to pray for you in all the moments where you don't know how to pray. Paul finishes. He says, Now He, the Father who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to His purpose. The Father knows what the Spirit prays for because He knows the mindset of the Spirit. Paul says earlier in Romans 8, the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. That's what God desires to give you. Jesus, in some of His final words to the disciples, as He was telling them that He would soon be leaving this earth, This is what He said to them. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow but i will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one no one will take from you from groanings to glory from groanings to glory that's from the words of jesus that's from the words of paul and as you and i continue through this life you will suffer You will groan. You will labor. But the Spirit is with you. Praying for you. And remember the inheritance. Remember the opportunity to be a co-heir. If we co-suffer. That we may be co-glorified with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for... Times of refreshment in your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, it speaks to the very condition of our heart. Lord, we are a people who many of whom are going through hard times, difficult times, relationship troubles, depression, financial issues. Lord, you know them. And we know now. And we have been reaffirmed that these troubles, not only are you praying for us in the midst of them, but these troubles will pale in comparison to what is before us in the kingdom. And we cling to that hope. We claim it. And we look forward to the day when we will be in your presence forever. In Jesus' name, Amen.